one way to interpret that is you can have a extremely short time horizon and maximize the amount of pleasurable experiences you as fast as you can basically party hard until you expire and of course there are some people who do this they take this life path and the question is is that a rational way to think about your values across time are you using practical reason well if you think that a fine way to live is just to satisfy whatever goals you have at that time or is there something deeper a question about what sorts of goals are worth pursuing welcome to stoic conversations in this podcast michael tremblay and i discuss the theory and practice of stoicism each week we'll share two conversations one between the two of us and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert and we are going to be talking about moral realism today so this conversation may be more philosophical in nature more theoretical but i think it's important and it's a sort of question that everyone i think asks themselves questions about values morality ethics you know are these sorts of things the judgments we make in these domains objective and if so or if not what does that mean Welcome to another Stoa Conversations. My name is Caleb Monteveros. And I'm Michael Tremblay. Yeah, and as you said, it, it's, uh, it'll be a bit more abstract, a bit more philosophical than a question of, of, you know, we had a discussion on euthanasia, which is maybe that, that most practical level, which is like policy. And you have general questions of what you should do in different kinds of situations. And this is, uh, in, in my philosophical education, we call it kind of a meta-ethics question. So a foundational kind of bedrock question that you need an answer to before you can start doing ethics. You know, ethics is the question of, of you know, what is right and wrong, assuming there, there is right and wrong. And moral realism is a meta-ethics question. It's a question of does right and wrong even exist? Or if it does, what kind of thing is it? Is it a thing we're just making up? Or is it a thing that is objective in the same way, you know, matter exists or people exist. Yeah. And to make it more concrete, you have this question, why do does this sort of discussion matter? There is the argument that you need meta-ethics in order to talk about these other levels of ethics to begin with. I'm not so sure if that's right personally, but there are just important questions that arise naturally, I think, which is these sorts of questions like, are value judgments arbitrary? Or are they relative, subjective, purely passionate things? You know, when I say something is wrong, when I say something is better, is that just the sort of statement that is the exact same? Basically, you know, when I say ice cream does not taste as good as sorbet, that's a pure matter of taste. Is that the same kind of judgment as the stoic life is better than the Epicurean one? Is that a judgment that is grounded in any kind of fact, or is it purely prejudice? 
So I think that sort of question arises, this issue, do our moral judgments refer to reality? We have these questions about the good life. Is there any sense in which what we might call a good life is good in an objective way? Or is there such a thing as human nature, perhaps, as a related question where many ancient philosophers believe that humans have a telos, a purpose, and that brings the question of, well, if judgments about telos are relative, subjective, arbitrary, then it seems like we can't make any such claim. Yeah, totally. So there's this, there's this worry about, and, I, and I, the reason we, we had this conversation is I was even, well, myself, I've studied philosophy for a long time, but I, I feel sometimes a little shaky in moral realism. I feel a little shaky in the idea that ethics is, is something objective and is not just me communicating ick or like, you know, I don't like it when somebody does that or I do like it, just these kind of taste judgments, these subjective judgments. So, you know, if, if Kale, if you can present some compelling reasons for moral realism, I will, be, I will, I will really love those. I think that would be really nice to have, it would have a lot more confidence. Another reason to care about moral realism is it really gets around this cultural relativist concern as well. So this idea that we could actually say, well, this way of doing things is worse, or this way of doing things is better, or this is, this is progress, or this is not. We can make these large judgments, not just referring to the, not just based on the culture we're in and the cultural values we have, but objectively, you know, Plato in, in Plato's Republic, they go through a lot of different definitions of justice. And by justice, they, they're talking about what's right to do or what people are owed. And one of the first definitions is justice is power. So justice is whatever the person who has the most power says is the case. And that's this kind of subjective reading of morality, which is morality is just the rules made by the people who run, you know, run the political systems or have the most power and you know, maybe that's, maybe that's fine if the people in power or, you know, do something you agree with, but we would like, I would like some sort of foundation to push back against that. I would like some sort of foundation to say, no, you may have the power, but you're wrong, which is something that, you know, the Stoics and, and Plato try to do. And, but a question we'll be tackling kind of bigger picture here today as well. Yeah. So we're going to, I'm going to be presenting some arguments for why you should think moral realism is true. And we'll see what, we'll see what Michael thinks about them. So of course, whenever you're talking about the philosophical issues like this, it's important to be clear about what's at stake. So I think a good definition, the definition that I'll be using for moral realism is that on this moral side, we're concerned about value judgments, which are ultimately claims about what is right or wrong, good or bad. And I don't mean this merely in a narrow sense, but broadly, you know, when people talk about the good life, is that an objective matter? And something is objective, on my account, moral realism, moral objectivity, basically the same thing. So moral realism, the view that there are morality is objective. And then of course, the question is, what does it mean for something to be objective? And on my account, a fine definition of this is that something is objective if it's being so 
or not isn't determined by our attitudes towards it. So humor is not objective. Something being funny is just a matter of everyone else finding it funny. What it is to be funny is just for a number of people to judge something as funny or not. Mm -hmm. Similarly, fashion is fashion an objective matter? No, whether or not something is fashionable, that's just going to be determined by our attitudes towards people's clothing, behavior, what have you. So those are examples of things that are not objective. On the objective side, we have scientific judgments. The idea that the earth is round, that idea is true, even if, and would be true, even if everyone thought it was flat. Similarly, 2 plus 2 equals 4, that idea would be true, even if everyone, for some reason, was confused. So scientific judgments, mathematical judgments, these are common examples of things that are objective. Their being so isn't determined by our attitudes towards them. So the fundamental point here is that if something is objective, our judgments cannot make it. Yeah, I think that's really well put. And two, two things I wanted to say to that. The first is that there's kind of a vice if you go in either direction. So if you think something that is subjective is objective, if you think something like humor or fashion is objective when it's not, that's the wrong call, right? And it kind of affects your life. If you go around being like, no, this is the only way to be funny, that person, even though everyone's laughing, that's not what is objectively funny. No, no, it's kind of weird. It's just like, that's kind of a low stakes example, but it's not the right thing to do. You don't want to think that subjective things are objective. Likewise, if you were to go around thinking some scientific judgments were subjective or mathematical judgments or the roundness of the world was subjective, you know, that would also be kind of a foolish thing to do. So there's something at stake either direction here. It's not like we can just, it's not like I can just say, well, I feel better if morality is objective, so I'm just going to pretend like it is objective. We want, you know, as, as me, as someone who's you know, training in Stoicism, I want to get the truth of the matter, right? I want to, I want to be, I want to see the world as it is, right? Um, the second thing I was thinking, a nice way to frame this, Plato has a dialogue called the Euthyphro. This is where the famous Euthyphro dilemma comes from. And this, in this dialogue, Socrates encounters somebody who is, I mean, I'll, I'll give the quick, I'll give the quick aspect of it. He encounters somebody who claims he knows what is pious, what is, what is right. And he says, well, what is even is piety? And they get in this argument about piety, which is, you know, I guess this kind of holy quality. And the argument comes, the argument centers around, well, is something, do gods call something pious because it is pious or is it pious because the gods call it pious, right? And another way of framing that is, are gods value creators or are they value discoverers? And that's the same question we're asking about morality today, which is, are, are human beings morality discoverers? We're like archaeologists trying to figure out a fact about the world, or are we value creators? Are we the ones creating ethical meaning in terms of that core right and wrong value? Which is, which is so th th this, this moral realism question, it's, it's, it's one that was of concern you know, back with Plato leading into the Stoics as well. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. So the question is, why would you think moral realism is true, if at all? I think this first came up when we were chatting about Nietzsche 
Nietzsche, the best reading of Nietzsche is probably as a moral anti-realist. And basically what he does is like these moral judgments, we can explain why we think equality is good by reference to these different social factors. He has this whole account of slave morality and master morality. And this is, you can think of it as a explanation for why we believe the things we do about things like equality, suffering, pity. And there's no sense in which objective facts need to play a role. Morality, in a sense, just turns out to be a kind of more weighty form of fashion or humor, if you will. So, of course, there are and, and arguments. Kelsey, yeah, as, as a reminder, could you go over the slave and master morality really quickly? Yeah. So he thinks something like, so one his his explanation of our moral judgments refers to what he calls slave morality, master morality. You can also think of it as priest morality versus warrior morality. Essentially, the slaves, you can think of them as peasants, lower classes, or Christians would be a group of people who decide to value equality. And why would they do that? They do that because the masters, the aristocrats, what have you, are more powerful than them. And equality advances their interests and it helps them you know, meet really what are essentially just selfish ends. Not selfish in the negative sense, but ends you can make sense of without needing to tell a story about objective morality. They want to stop being oppressed, so they'll tell a story that helps them band together and eventually bring down the master so they can live a better life. Whereas master morality, they also tell us another kind of story to themselves where what's good, the powerful warrior who <laughs> is landed and has many servants and slaves and that is what is honorable say and that serves their in interests of course as well you can think about this often we might want an account of why someone supports particular political positions and you could say you know you see some workers striking and you might think oh these workers who are striking for justice they're just lazy or something like this those, and then you might say, oh, the person who says that, they're just the business owner who wants their protesters to go back to work. And in both cases, you are coming up with some accounts of the behavior that does not make any reference to objective facts. So that's the kind of thing that Nietzsche is involved in. And the master-slave morality is a more sophisticated version of what you might often see in disagreements over, say, workers' rights or whenever you have these sorts of debates involving power struggles. That, that I think is a, I think Nietzsche, that's a pretty compelling example of if anti, because one of the questions we have is, you know, if morality isn't, isn't real, why does everyone act like it's real all the time? And Nietzsche's picture is like, well, because it serves our interests to kind of come up with rules that limit, that reward our own behavior or limit the behavior of people that can hurt us. It's, a, it's, an, it's an explanation for why morality might seem the case 
even if it's not, even if it's not. So I think that's that's a good anti-realism picture. And now we jump into the arguments for why realism would be true. Yeah. So one argument that people love or they hate, you know, that people some people love it, other people really don't find it all plausible, is what's sometimes called the argument from intuition. And it's very simple. It's just that some things really seem like they have objective value. If the Germans won World War II and they brainwashed everyone into thinking that everything they did in World War II was totally fine, all the killing, torture, and so on, all of that was completely kosher, people would have false beliefs. They would be mistaken about the nature of morality. And that to many people seems obviously true. So they have the intuition that moral realism accurately represents reality. Similarly, if in a more ordinary, ordinary cases, you might see someone act with virtue, they're exceptionally courageous or disciplined, and you just immediately make the judgment, oh, that's a good trait. And well, typically when we see things in the world, you know, I see a chair in front of me, I'm justified in assuming, in assuming that belief is correct. Suppose I went across the street and decide whether I'm safe. I just look both ways. Seems to me that I'm safe. Go ahead. And nearly always that judgment is going to be correct as long as I, as long as I have adequately prepared. So there's this idea that we're justified in taking our appearances to reflect reality unless there is some defeater for the, for the judgment, some reason why my judgment might be impaired. If I have, for whatever reason, taken a number of drugs before looking both ways and crossing the street, in that case, I might not want to trust appearances. I want, might want to be much more careful. But the idea is, well, it just seems to us like some things are truly good, other things are truly bad. And well, what's the defeater for that judgment? Of course, there are many different kinds of arguments we could cover, but the thought is none of them are any good. So we can conclude that moral realism is true. Some things have objective value. So that's the, that's the first argument. I think it's a pretty bad argument. I think for a couple of reasons, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an expert in this kind of stuff or anything, but one, the, the example I was thinking of is it seems for the majority of human history, it seemed very clear that the sun was rather small, maybe around like half the size of the earth and it rotated around the earth. And that seemed to be the case. And there was no defeater for it until we came up with a defeater. So it was, it, it seems to me that, you know, it was a heuristic. It was kind of a, just the, we can just assume this until something comes up, but that's not really the truth that we're looking for. Right. And, and the nice thing about the sun example is that it doesn't really make a difference how big the sun is. I still got to put my crops under there. I still got to watch out for a sunburn. But it makes a great deal of difference whether or not morality is true. So this kind of general assumption, like the intuition is good enough, we can rely on that. I guess the car example is a bit higher stakes, right? Makes a great deal of difference whether or not I get hit by cars. And I'm not going to not cross the street in case an invisible car happens to exist. That's a bit of, that's a, bit of a more compelling that's a more compelling example than the one that I just came up with. But <laughs> the other thing I would say to this from a stoic perspective is 
when you're talking about the way it seems, when you talk about intuition, what you're talking about is impressions, right? You're talking about pre-reflective, the way things seem. And one thing that Stoicism teaches us is that impressions are wrong all the time. And we don't, actually the Stoic argument is we don't, we don't accept impressions until there's counter arguments. We only accept impressions that we have evidence for. The Stoic position is actually one of defaulting to skepticism until you have good evidence for it. And so you gave a car example. The good evidence for the car is that it's, it's inference, really. It's that, you know, people that have looked both ways haven't got killed by cars, invisible cars, for all of human history up until this point. People that have sat in chairs, the chairs haven't disappeared for all of human history. So that inference, enough of those lets you, lets you trust that impression. But I don't think we have evidence for moral realism or evidence against moral realism in our intuition and certainly nothing to infer from. So that would be my counter argument. Yeah, I think to make this argument work, you need to show that we're sort of in a similar position as we are when it comes to other foundational questions, say when it comes to physical realism. So the Stoics were, of course, physical realists. They thought they were physical bodies, material bodies, and the universe. And then the question is, well, what's the evidence for thinking that we have, of course, impressions that there are these material physical things? And one way to come to justify our beliefs that there are chairs, cars, other physical people, organisms, and so on, is just that we get these impressions and there are no defeaters for them. There's no very good skeptical argument. So we can be justified in believing that there are, in fact, physical bodies. That's the sort of move this argument from intuition is making. And now if you want to say, actually, the Stoic position is that we have evidence beyond our impressions that there is a physical world, the question, of course, is, well, what is that evidence? You might say that it's some argument from inference or something of this sort. But of course, what your infer your data is just other impressions, most likely. Well, um, I actually, ahead. I actually, like, I, 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 I know the Stoic play here. So we're going to get a, a bit into the nitty gritty here. But the Stoic move, because the Stoics were debating with skeptics, right? The academic skeptics. And the academic skeptics made this line except against the intuition. They're saying, look, all you have is intu intuition, all you have is impressions, and you're just relying on other impressions to construct a worldview of impressions. None of this is ever touching the world as it really is, right? It's only touching your representation of the world. And the skeptic, the Stoic solution to this is almost like a leap of faith. It might not be that satisfying to listeners, but it's to say, well, there's a kind of, there's a kind of way that true things feel there's a kind of way that when something's really the case, it just feels different. And that was called a cataleptic impression. And the idea of the cataleptic impression were these were things that you couldn't help but assent to. Epictetus uses the example, you know, believe that it is night when it's daylight. You just can't. You can like pretend like you're a brain in, the, in a vat. You can pretend you're plugged into the matrix, but you can't act on it with confidence because your, your, your body 
as a natural thing connected to the natural universe is compelled by the clarity of these impressions and the, and the actual difference of sensation of those impressions. But that's a stoic argument. The skeptics, of course, go, that's silly, <laughs> right? <laughs> Why would you believe one impression just because it seems a bit more intense than another one? But that's really, the, that's the stoic move. Is it, It's not, I guess I'm just having trouble with your idea of like, well, if nothing defeats it, it's good. And I know mm -hmm. that's not your idea. I just think that fails because the stoic argument isn't, isn't even that. The stoic argument is not nothing defeats it. The stoic argument is this is different in type. The difference yeah. when, I'm, when I'm touching a chair, when I'm sitting in a chair and looking at it, really focusing on this, this beautiful chair, it's really focusing on it. That's a different kind of experience than when, you know, I think I thought I saw something in the dark. Yeah, yeah. Their argument from catalepsis or something like this for moral realism would be something like it's we cannot help in yeah, yeah. situations that really matter being moral realists. Sure, on a podcast and some discussion with your mates, you might defend <laughs> moral nihilism. The idea that nothing's really wrong or bad. This is basically talk of fictions. But if you see someone insult your friends, if you witness an extreme form of injustice or alternatively see someone acting positively, heroically, you cannot help but see that there are truly good and bad things in the world. That would be the, the sort of the stoic gloss on this, which wouldn't make reference to appearances as sort yeah. of initial evidence. But the fact that we, you know, we cannot help in these certain cases that are qualitatively different from many other forms of our perception. That's a good way of putting it. I agree. I agree that that's what the stoics would think. Yeah, yeah. Whether or that, or would not be, that, would be a, that would be a stoic way of saying it. Yeah, yeah. I think that that argument and the argument from intuition seem pretty similar to me. The modern argument from intuition, it's not terribly modern, but relative to the Stoics, I suppose, yeah, modern. Yeah. They seem similar, both about as strong. So we can spend some more time, but we've got two other arguments. So let's, let's cover those. So all of you know how to defend more realism <laughs> after this podcast. If, if you meet someone at a bar who has a philosophy undergrad, you're well prepared. <laughs> to push back against their nihilism. That's right. That's right. The other argument is the argument from practical reason, or you can also think of it as uh, sort of brought, brought to mind because of how we think about ourselves moving through time. So suppose, you know, you're an Epicurean when you are younger and not just in the philosophical, sophisticated sense. I had a talk with Emily Austin. She defends Epicureanism, which was a rival school to the Stoics. They thought that the good life was a matter of pleasure, of feeling good and you know, one way to interpret that is you can have a extremely short time horizon and maximize the amount of pleasurable experiences you, as fast as you can. Basically, party exceptionally 
hard until you expire. And of course, there are some people who do this. They take this life path. And the question is, is that a rational way to think about your values across time? Are you using practical reason well if you think that a fine way to live is just to satisfy whatever goals you have at that time? Or is there something deeper, a question about what sorts of goals are worth pursuing? So that's the initial initial case. If you wanted to make this into an argument form, the idea would be someone who chooses to suffer perhaps use a suffering case for an arbitrary reason, is acting irrationally. They can only be acting irrationally if moral realism is true. The conclusion, moral realism is true. So if you think that it would be irrational for someone to take on this sort of extreme Epicurean way of life, you can only make that claim properly if you are a moral realist. And you might say, well, that's fine. They can live their own life. There's nothing wrong with that. If someone chooses to do that, you know, that's just a, a preference. There are many kinds of preferences in the world. But if you think about your own life, my sense is that very few people think about themselves this way. They would not think that if they woke up the next day and found themselves with the values of the extreme Epicurean that they would you know, be pleased. They wouldn't just say, oh, these are just some preferences like any other. Rather, they would think that these sorts of goals are in some real sense flawed. They would be missing the mark of what a good life would be. And the best way to account for this, I think, is with more realism. So that's that's the first pass at, at this argument from practical realism. Okay, let me take a swing at that. I, I, I don't know if I can talk about this without bringing in some teleology. So it's going to be two two concepts in a row. But so the argument here, I, I, I like it. It makes more sense to me from the negative conception, as you put it. Someone who chooses to suffer for an arbitrary reason. I think of the person who just, you know, puts their hand on the stove, uh, is acting irrationally. They can only be acting rationally if more realism is true. More realism is true. And so when I read that, I think, well, they're only acting irrationally if they're acting against what's in their best interests or acting against what they take to be the plan for their own life. If someone's plan is to burn their hand, then they're acting, at least in one sense, quite rationally. That's the best way to do it is to put your hand on the stove. So you have to be acting against what makes sense in some kind of larger sense. And you're probably referring there to what makes a good life or a bad life. And then by there, you're kind of smuggling ethics in, or at least teleological ethics. So the Stoics believed in teleology, which was the idea that there was a better or there was a, a proper... So telos is the Greek word for the end. So it means that we're all kind of on a journey where we're all kind of progressing towards an end state or an earlier state. We kind of have a function. We have a purpose. We have a way to be that is the best way to be. And human beings all share this in common. The Stoics think that's to act rationally. 
the Epicureans think it's to have as much pleasure and as little pain as possible. Everybody, most of the Greeks believe in teleology and they think we have an end. So when you say someone who suffers for an arbitrary reason is acting irrationally, the Stoics would agree with that statement because they would say, well, unless you're doing that for some other purpose, maybe you're, maybe you're protecting your child who's walking too close to the stove and you burn yourself back, so something like this, right? Unless right. you're acting for some other reason, you're just, you're doing something that goes against your end. You're, you're doing something that goes against what is best for you, which is to maintain your body, unless you have a different reason. And so that's irrational. So yeah, given if we believe, I'm just not persuaded by this argument because the argument seems to me to say that like, if there is a way to act to better or worse, and that means good or bad, that means to be living a good life or a bad life, then to do something bad for no reason is irrational. And then if that's the case, the moral realism is true. But I feel like we're smuggling that teleology into there. That's me putting my really skeptical hat on. I do find this yeah, quite yeah. compelling. Yeah. So I think if you don't find the what I call the extreme Epicurean person a useful example of someone choosing suffering for an arbitrary reason, sorry to all our Epicurean listeners out there, <laughs> I'm not doing any justice to your view, I think that, you know, one kind of move, the sorts of move that philosophers like David Hume would make is, well, reason is really just means and reasoning. Most people don't find the, what I call the extreme Epicurean, the person who puts their hand on the hot stove to be acting rationally because we have ends, we have goals that are inconsistent with those life plans. And that is what explains their, our judgments about their behavior. Just the fact that we have those ends. There's no question about are those ends themselves justified. And then, so the next move then in this argument is to think about, well, suppose we had someone who did not have those ends. With those sorts of judgments, would we still say that they are acting rationally or not? So, you know, you can imagine, suppose someone, they have an exceptionally short time horizon. All they want to do is have fun for the next day and they will make decisions to decide that they will have fun for the next day, even if it results in extreme physical suffering and emotional suffering after the following day. Why will they do that? Well, they just all they care about, all that's in their means and system is the next day. And I think if you are a dedicated Humean, the person who thinks that, you know, all we can say about reason has to do with means ends in these hypothetical cases, you'll say that that person is acting rationally for the most part if they choose to have fun for the next day, even if it results in extreme suffering for the rest of their life. But that doesn't seem like the right judgment to me. It seems like now we've, that suggests that the Humean is making a mistake. What do you think about that way of advancing the dialectic? Yeah, again, so the argument I'm taking here is if what it means to act rationally is just to act in a way that pursues the thing you want, or gets you towards the thing you want. So if you say, 
I want to walk or I want to fly to Mexico, you're, you're acting irrationally if you fly to the UK. You're just not advancing it, but you're acting rationally if you fly to Mexico. If you're saying, if you're saying acting rationally is just the satisfaction of the ends, then we have no way of explaining the irrationality or the seemingness that, the seemingness that it doesn't make sense or it's not the right way to act for someone who's satisfying their ends, even if those are really weird ends, even if their end is, is very short-term, very short-sighted, or their end is, I don't, you could even use a more extreme example, involving the suffering of others or something like that. We have no way to push mm -hmm. back against that. But it seems like we should be able to push back against that. It seems like it's a totally reasonable thing to say that person is acting irrationally, they're acting poorly, so moral realism is true. And the, the point I was trying to make is that the thing that grounds, there, there's two kinds of ends, right? There's the end that is the thing that you want in the moment. And then there's the end that is the thing that's actually good for you. And what I feel like this argument is doing and what the Stoics would agree is the Stoics would say, look, there is something that's actually good for you. So when you, when you, when you act poorly, you're acting irrationally because you're going against what's actually good for you. If you cause yourself, your body unnecessarily suffering, if you engage in, even if you engage for them, all kind of unethical behavior, right? If you cheat, if you lie, if you hurt other people, you're acting against your own best interest, which is to be virtuous and to be happy, right? Mm -hmm. So everything, you, you might be satisfying this kind of personal subjective short-term end, which is, you know, I want to, I want that fancy thing, so I'm going to steal it but you're acting irrationally in reference to your human end. And I agree with that. I'm, I'm compelled by that. I think that's the stoic argument, but I guess I'm not sure how it gets, you know, we can move on from this, but I guess I'm not sure how it gets around just that, that, again, that skeptical push of, yeah, but I don't endorse that end. The Nietzschean point, you've just been conditioned to view that as the human end, but you haven't really transcended that. You can't really, like, that's, that's not, that's, no more real thing than it is kind of a shared cultural conception or something like this. Mm -hmm. That's, that's yeah. my take. Yeah, I think the there's some more discussion, I think, around can the anti-realist handle these, can they either explain away why someone choosing to suffer for an arbitrary reason is these sorts of cases we gave, can they come up with some anti-realist explanation for why this is irrational behavior. That's one kind of move they can make. Or they mm -hmm. can say, that's not irrational. You just describe a case that's not irrational, and I will, as philosophers sometimes say, bite the bullet. You know, I don't think that the extreme Epicurean is doing anything irrational. I don't think that the person who literally only cares about their happiness for one day is irrational, if you've described that case correctly. There's no way in which we can say they are rational. And then the next move here for the realist, I think, is to question whether that's how people think about their ends through time. Are they really subject to this condition that, oh, you could have turned out to be just like the extreme Epicurean, and there would be no sense in which you would be justified in wishing that your life had turned out otherwise. I think that's where the, the argument will go, will go next. Mm -hmm. Practice Stoicism with Stoa. 
Stoa combines the ancient philosophy of Stoicism with meditation in a practical meditation app. It includes hundreds of hours of exercises, lessons, and conversations to help you live a happier life. Find it available for a free download in the Play Store and App Store. Well, the last the last argument we have here, it has a similar structure, but has to do with epistemology as opposed to practical reason. So epistemology that concerns knowledge, the study of knowledge, ideas about is this claim justified? Is Does this belief amount to knowledge? These are the sorts of things that are epistemic matters. And this argument is just that if moral realism is false, epistemic realism is false. But we know that epistemic realism is true, so that entails that moral realism is true. And the reason to believe that epistemic realism is true is that some beliefs are justified whether our you know our judgments are not sufficient to make a belief reasonable or justified our judgments alone are not what determine whether something is evidence or not is it whether it's good evidence or not there is such a thing as thinking well and it's not like thinking fashionably it's when we think about excellence in thought we're not defining excellence sort of as a matter of taste, but as something that properly gets at describing the world, describing the way things are, and there's a way we ought to think. And I think the important move here is, well, why would you think this? That's the case for why you would think epistemic realism is true, but why would you think that more realism and, and epistemic realism are tied together? Yeah. And the one reason to, to think this is that all the arguments against moral realism apply to epistemic realism. You can say that our judgments about what beliefs are justified or what it is to think well, you know, they have to do with these sociological factors. You know, you can pick your favorite kind of explanation. They are thinking well is just a matter of what is in fashion. And what is in fashion, well, maybe that's turned by, determined by some political factors, some social factors, what have you. Uh, also, you know, you can, some common arguments against the moral realism is, well, what are these moral facts? Where is goodness in the world? It doesn't seem like it's some physical thing, some people say. It doesn't seem like it's a mathematical fact. But you can make the same sorts of claims about epistemic matters. You know, what really is good thinking or thinking well, where are these facts about how one ought to think? That seems like a normative matter. It is a normative matter. And it's, you know, is that located somewhere in the brain? You know, maybe not, someone might say. But our, you know, the thought, of course, is then most of these arguments, too many to cover in the time we have now, are no good. So we should continue to be epistemic realists. But if we should continue to be epistemic realists, then we should be moral realists as well. That's the quick version of this argument. Yeah, that one's kind of fun. My initial thoughts on that are twofold. First is you get this interesting thing in Stoicism where for the Stoics, virtue is knowledge. We almost do a, a, a whole episode on that. We 
But the, the, the view for Stoics that is that to think well is to act well because action is determined by our, our value judgments. If we know the right thing to do, we'll do it. If we value the right things, we'll live in accordance with those values. And to live a good life is to just be the kind of person that makes the right decisions. So it's to identify the right decisions, to value them, and to do them. So for the Stoics, virtue is knowledge. So these things actually collapse on each other. Epistemic realism, moral realism kind of merge, right? If there's a right way, way to think, for the Stoics, the right way to think is the right way to be. They're the same thing. You couldn't say, you couldn't say, wow, that's a great person. They're kind of a bad thinker, though. And you couldn't say that's a great thinker, kind of a bad person. The two things, the two things wouldn't make sense in Stoicism. So interesting there. The second thought I had was to do charitable to this. The view is kind of if we can say that anything about being a person has a way there ought to be, then we then we can smuggle in these ideas of a good life or a better or worse way to live. So that was the way I was taking the argument was that if there's a right way to think and you're thinking worse when you commit fallacies, when you ignore evidence, when you believe things that don't deserve, don't have sufficient evidence, if you can say that you're, you're a worse thinker than somebody else, then you can presumably say you're a worse person, at least if that's the only thing we have on the table so far, we just have epistemic strength. And then from there, if there's better or worse people, you can build in there's better or worse ways to live. And then from there, you kind of, you kind of build up to this moral realism. That's, that's the way I was thinking about it. And I, I think that's, I never heard that one before. I, I have to think about it some more, but I think that's kind of a compelling or interesting picture is that, you know, if there's a better or worse way to be in, in one case, then, then the whole domino kind of falls. And there, then there's a better or worse mm -hmm. way to be in all cases. If we can, if we can admit it for anything, we can admit it for, for all these kind of should ought claims. And one way where the should ought claim seems the most compelling is around these kind of epistemic questions or these kind of factors, better or worse thinking. That's a, that's a good way to put it. Ultimately, I think this argument is similar to the previous one in the sense that the moves that the best moves for the anti-realist to make are the same, I think. So yeah. they might say that one way to deny this argument is to say that if the first premise, if moral realism is false, epistemic realism is false and sort of take those apart. I don't think that's what you should do. I think those, they're actually tied together tightly for some stoic reasons, but also just because, in fact, all the arguments against moral realism do port over nicely to epistemic realism. So I think they should deny epistemic realism. And the way they'll do that, the best way to do that, is to say that our epistemic judgments, again, are grounded in the ends we in fact have. So yeah. typically, we say someone is a good thinker because their thought aligns with what it takes to come to the accurate views of the world. And we care about coming to the accurate views of the world generally because that aligns with happiness and all our other desires. If you, you know, if you, if you take the crossing the street example again, it's important for me to have justified beliefs about whether cars are crossing the street or not because I have many desires like the desire to have a wonderful dinner later on that will be frustrated if I don't have accurate beliefs and get, you know, bumped by a car. Yeah, totally. So I or think, yeah, just to ahead. add something to that, you might also make the kind of play where you'd say that there's sometimes it's beneficial to think 
poorly. Like for some kinds of lives, it's better to be the kind of person that doesn't question too much. So, you know, the mind of a scientist might be different than the mind of a lawyer, which might be different than the way of thinking if you're a salesperson or a politician or maybe in a position where questioning or being skeptical doesn't benefit you, right? It's like, it's like you, it would be this view of just looking at reasoning as a tool. And generally speaking, you want to be as good of a reasoner as possible. But for some people, maybe people in, I'm thinking of people in particularly bad situations, it might actually be better for them to believe, uh, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're ill and you, you want to believe in, in an afterlife, for example, even if there might not be compelling evidence for that. Or, you know, I don't know, somebody, or people that think there's any reason to believe lies, you know, somebody that you were close to actually you know, said really mean, hurtful things about you. And you're, you're not going to really ask about it too much or learn about it because it'll just hurt your feeling. Reasoning just becomes this kind of preservation tool to pursue these other ends, as you're saying. And in some cases, it can actually be good to be a poor reasoner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that might, that might be right. You, I think you, you had this discussion with Julia Galef and you always chat about the case of overconfidence. Our confidence of entrepreneurs, and there's this debate: Is it reasonable for entrepreneurs to be overconfident in their success, or should they instead aim to have accurate beliefs? There's one way of handling that objection, which is to say that that's not so much an argument against epistemic realism; it's just the fact that some epistemic facts might combat or be inconsistent with other kinds of goals we have. There's some amount of tension. You know, famously, there's this debate about moral, how demanding is morality, and are we demanded to be a moral saint, or is it okay to be someone who is, lives a balanced life of some mix of selfishness and altruism? So there's a, a famous paper by a woman named Susan Wolf, who's debating with another philosopher, Peter Singer, called Moral Saints, and it's about, about this question. And you could interpret that as a question about normative ethics that doesn't have any bearing on uh, meta-ethics, as it were. It's just trying to sort out of these different demands, which one wins out in this case. So that might be, that might be one one way to evade evade your move but then the question is i think for the realist well once you've made that evasion how strong are the sorts of examples you're giving of ep epistemic realism you know have you sort of undercut the judgments or cases that you're given to defend that second premise that epistemic realism is true mm -hmm. yeah that, that that's a compelling point. So to, because I often think about this. So just to use that in different words, the idea was, you know, I might believe morality is true. I believe it's better to help people, but I don't go around donating all my money all the time. I don't get a job only for the explicit purpose of making as much money as possible so that I can donate more money. I don't do these things. I, I do things that are not actively helpful. I don't reach the, the level of saint and that's fine. That doesn't mean morality is false. That means sometimes I'm just choosing to be less moral to pursue other ends, like watching Netflix on my couch. Uh, and so to flip that over, sometimes 
we might reason poorly, or sometimes we might have reasons to reason poorly. That doesn't mean there's no such thing as thinking well. It doesn't mean these, these, these facts of how to think go away. It just means sometimes I might choose not to put my critical thinking hat on in a certain situation if it doesn't, it doesn't benefit me. I think that's, I, that's a pretty compelling counterexample. Yeah, yeah. And, but then I think the move from the anti-realize is to say, well, you've explained why epistemic realism makes sense of that case by reference to some other realism that I don't believe in. Yeah, fair enough. Right. So there's that. Yeah, I'd say for me personally, I actually think the first two arguments are pretty good. The last one about epistemic realism probably ends up looking pretty similar to the second after a number of more argumentative moves are made. But I think the case for something that is more realism or effectively very close to more realism is, is a good one. Whether or not you know you you think the same is up for up for you for you to decide. Yeah, interested in what people listening think as well. I think the second one is pretty compelling about revealing facts about human psychology and maybe even facts about human nature. And I think if we can get facts about human psychology and human nature, I think we're most of the way there to telos. I think if most people can agree somebody's acting irrationally when they burn their hand for no reason, then we we're getting pretty clear to a picture of a better or worse way to live. And once we get into claims about better or worse ways to live, then I think we're, we're most of the way there. Yep. Yeah. You could, one reading of that is that, well, we share enough of the ends. We have enough of the ends, both in our own lives and in common across time. I want to be an excellent person. I want that was true of me when I was 10. That's going to be true of me when I'm 60. So that's some reason to reason consistently about it. Similarly, other people have the same most. Other people have the same. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's one, one thought. And that's enough for us to be doing a philosophy, be thinking about a philosophy of life and applying that in our own lives. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Anything you want to end with? I guess I want to I want to bring it back to the Stoic position a bit on here, or do my best to run up the Stoic view around this. The Stoic view would be that there's certain physical facts about human nature, so there we we have a teleology, and that there's better or worse ways for humans to live. Those facts are physical, but those facts are also physical in kind of the big physics world name, which is that they're grounded in kind of facts about the the universe itself and facts about the divine or the stoic god or this kind of conception of the way the world should be and so that's morality right there and just morality you're doing good when you are the way you should be and you're doing bad when you're not the way you should be for them they say like they say again to live a, a happy life is to and to be happy is to be virtuous and to be good is to live in accordance with nature, accordance with your nature and accordance with the nature of the universe. To be unhappy, to live bad, is to desire to put yourself out of line with nature. And often that looks like wanting things that are impossible. Often that looks like trying to control things that aren't up to you, trying to make the world into something it's not by force and then being frustrated, angry, sad when it's not, trying to make other people act in ways they don't want to act or not considering other people 
not acknowledging the fact that you're part of a community or these kinds of facts of the world. So we, we get a robust ethical picture. All the Stoics, we talk about all this, this idea of Stoic ethics, that all comes from just this view, this meta-ethical grounding, that there are facts about the natural world, about the way that it should be. And in terms of how they get there, you can do these kind of extreme skeptical arguments against that. But you know, I, you're, you're most of the way there, as I said before, the Stoic view of, of moral realism, if you think things can go better or worse, or, or things can be more in line with how they should be or, or less. And that's mm. my understanding of the extent of the claim. I could probably go back and read some more Stoic theology or some more Stoic, how Stoic, the Stoic God grounds that a bit more. But that's really what they're working from. Excellent. Perfect. That's, a, I think, a good way to end. Awesome. Thanks, Gil. All right. Chat later. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use, and share it with a friend. We are just starting this podcast, so every bit of help goes a long way. And I'd like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. Do check out his work at ancientliar.com. And please get in touch with us at stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback or questions. Until next time.